Well, welcome to Trinity and welcome to House Church. This is something that is not our usual practice, but it has been usual practice for the past couple of weeks. Welcome to you if Trinity's home and, and welcome if you're joining for the first time, maybe listening on podcast, uh, tuning in with us. We're glad that you can be here. Uh, we're going through what's called Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. It's an incredible section of scripture from Matthew 5 through 7. Jesus is going to paint a picture of the kingdom of God, what it looks like to understand him as king, to relate to him as king, and to see that there actually is a different way of living. There's a different way forward. And so for those of you who are outside of Christianity listening in, we hope that today can be thoughtful for you. It can provoke some questions and that you have some people that you can dialogue with. We want to make ourselves available to all of you, whether Trinity's home or not, in learning more about following Jesus in this moment. Of course, today is Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day, Mama, if you're watching. I love you a lot. A quick note to moms and dads who are actually in the room. We're going to be diving into a section of Scripture where Jesus addresses kind of his sexual ethic. And so we're going to be talking about human sexuality today. If you feel like pressing pause, going to get Peppa Pig on or the new, uh, the new Star Wars, do that now. Get the kids set up. Jump right back in with us, whether it's now or in a little bit. So just fair warning on what we're going to be talking about. A beautiful section of Scripture, but if you don't want certain ears in the room, now's the time to get them doing something else. Uh, but we're going to read from Matthew 5, 27 through 30. Matthew 5, 27 through 30, Jesus sets up this conversation with the people who are on a hill with him. It's a diverse crowd. Some people are interested in following him. Some people are figuring it out, and some people just aren't interested. A very diverse crowd, probably like the audience who's listening to this right now. But Jesus has some unique things to say about a new way forward, especially as it regards our sexuality. So let's listen to what Jesus has to say here from Matthew 5. Again, beginning with verse 27. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is God's word for us today. <clears throat> Christianity has a lot to say, and Jesus in particular has a lot to say about the social script that's currently being written and that we are most likely believing as it is related to human sexuality. This is a hot topic. This is an important topic. It's a personal topic. And so I want to invite us to listen in to how Jesus is going to explain kind of this kingdom ethic as it relates to righteous living and sexuality. A couple of things to get us started. A couple of quotes from, from, from a few different writers, uh, Nancy Piercy and Gail Dines. Here's what Nancy Piercy says first in her book that's entitled Love Thy Body. Piercy writes, if you have not talked with young people lately, you may not realize how soulless the hookup culture is. A hookup can be any level of physical involvement from kissing to sexual intercourse. According to the rules of the game, you're not to become emotionally attached no relationship, no commitment, no exclusivity. The script is that you are supposed to be able to walk away from the experience as if it did not happen. Gail Dines, in an article in the Washington Post, here's what she writes. She says the statistics on today's porn use are staggering. A Huffington Post headline announced in 2013 that porn sites get more visitors each month than Netflix Amazon, and Twitter combined. 
and one of the largest free porn sites in the world, YouPorn, streamed six times the bandwidth of Hulu in 2013. Pornhub, another major free porn site, boasted that in 2015 it received 21.2 billion visits and streamed 75 gigs of data a second, which translates to enough porn to fill the storage in around 175 million 16 gig iPhones. And one more from Nancy Piercy again. She says, today, the average age that a boy first encounters pornography is nine years old. I've got a little 10-year-old. By the time he is an adult, he has been consuming porn for more than a decade. How does that affect his relationships with real women? Time Magazine reports many of them are simply unable to experience a sexual response with real-life women. They are only able to respond to pornography. In fact, they prefer pornography. In other words, they prefer not going to the trouble of dealing with a real person. What's going on in our lives, what's going on in our culture as it relates to sexuality, to pornography, to sexual expression, to understanding who we are as sexual beings is a hot and important conversation. And what Jesus has to say in the Sermon on the Mount is an immensely helpful, maybe potentially different way forward for us. So I'm, I'm excited to walk you through this. I've got three movements today if you happen to be a note taker. Number one, we're going to look at the nature of lust. Number two, we're going to look at the character of real love. And then thirdly, I'm going to walk you through learning to treasure Jesus. So number one, the nature of lust. Number two, the character of real love. And then number three, learning to really treasure Jesus. So under this first part, what I'm calling the nature of lust, glance again at verse 27. Here Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, you may remember if you tuned in with us last week that Jesus has a couple of times where he's doing this thing that we're calling unlearning. In fact, the title of this entire series is Unlearning, the upside down practices or principles that Jesus pulls out from the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus comes in and says, you have heard that it was said, what he's about to say is, but there's a new way forward. Or there's a deeper understanding behind what you think you already know. Last week, we talked about the sixth commandment and this command to not kill. Jesus comes in and goes, you know what it looks like to love your neighbor? And they go, yeah, Jesus, we know exactly what it looks like. Don't kill anybody. And he goes, yeah, of course it looks like not taking life. But what about anger? What about contempt? What about holding somebody in such animosity that you dehumanize them? What about the bitterness that's growing out of your soul? He goes, when you have those sorts of emotions and those sort of experiences, he goes, that's actually murdering somebody in your heart. And that matters, maybe not as much as taking somebody's life, but it matters immensely. Jesus is always going to the motivations. He's going to the human heart. He's going to the psyche. He's going through the mind. He's motivating. He understands the motivations for human behavior. And so in this section of the scripture, when he says, you have heard that it was said, again, you know that some unlearning is going to happen. Instead of the sixth commandment, we're looking at the seventh commandment. The seventh commandment commanded people not to commit adultery. And these people are talking about marriage, probably having some sort of conversation about those who are on the inside and those who are on the outside, those who have kept the seventh commandment and those who have not kept the seventh commandment. And there's kind of this legalistic line. And so the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the day would have said, look, the seventh commandment says, don't 
commit adultery. And so they kind of look and they go, are you the sort of person who's crossed the line? Are you the sort of individual who's broken the commandment? We've got the insiders and the outsiders. And Jesus steps in in the Sermon on the Mount, and he kind of says it's not that simple. It's not as easy as you might think it is. He says, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in her heart. And what Jesus is doing is he's breaking down the walls of legalism, and he is getting underneath the law to its real intent. And he says, yeah, maybe you haven't broken the actual commandment, but let's get underneath the commandment and let's get straight into your heart. See, the word that's been translated as lust in our context, in our translation, is an extremely important, it's an extremely important word for what Jesus is trying to unpack. I want you to notice that Jesus is not saying that if a man looks at a woman and notices her beauty, that he's committed adultery with her. Notice that he doesn't say that. See, attraction is natural. Attraction is something that we, at times, you can't help. You see beauty. Notice that he also does not say that if somebody is tempted in their hearts that they've actually committed adultery. He does not say that, as if temptation were the issue. The reason we know that that's actually true is because Jesus himself was tempted. Temptation is not the problem. Temptation is not the sin. Jesus spends 40 days out in the wilderness, and for 40 days, Jesus is tempted. Jesus, though, we believe was without sin. Temptation is not the issue. The main problem is what the ESV calls lustful intent, or looking at a woman lustfully, or over-desire for a woman or for a man. That's not your spouse. This is what Jesus is addressing right now, an over-desire for someone or for something. Lust, biblically, is a good desire that's gone bad. It's this natural impulse that's been taken to an extreme. And when we hear somebody talking about a lust for power or a lust for money or a lust for a relationship or a lust for beauty or a lust for recognition, we are talking about somebody who has kind of an over-realized and over-expanded, this too-big-for-real-life desire for that thing. Man, they want money. They want influence. They have this lust for power. And when it's said in that context, you begin to understand, see, it's an over-desire. It's too much, it's too big, it's too grand, it doesn't fit. And see, when Jesus starts to unpack the nature of lust and sexuality, what he does is he goes, you know what? It's a good desire gone way wrong. In fact, it's an over-desire. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, let me illustrate it like this. And maybe you know the story of Israel's most famous king. His name is David. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, when all the kings were supposed to be out at war, what the text tells us is that David was supposed to be with his men. He's supposed to be the general. He's supposed to be the king way out front. But David's home. He's bored. He's taking a walk. He ends up on the rooftop terrace. He's walking around. Got nice weather, kind of like San Diego. He looks across to his neighbor's probably rooftop, and he notices a beautiful woman. And he noticed that she's bathing. And instead of going, that's not my wife, he takes a second look. And see, really, he should have turned around, but he takes a third look. And he looks again, and he looks again, and then his imagination starts to run. And he starts to say to himself, I'd like to have a conversation with this woman. Of course we know he wants a whole lot more than a conversation. And because he's the king, that plan in his imagination, it starts to become actuality. And he sends a servant to go and get this woman named Bathsheba. And she comes into the palace and they end up having an adulterous affair. She gets pregnant and 
David, of course, ends up having to cover it up through murder of this woman's actual husband, his friend. And his name was Uriah. This is what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 11. See, this story, though, it begins with a lust, an over-desire. He sees this woman. He sees her beauty. Attraction's not the issue. It's the second look. It's the third look. And then it's the imagination that says, I want it. Right? Lust is about you. Lust is about what you want. It's about self-satisfaction. It's about gratifying your desires. It's about never saying no to yourself. It's about living an unrestrained, unrestricted life because the social narrative around self-expression and happiness tells us that this is the foundation of the good life. But then it's no wonder that sex as an appetite or sex as self-expression is really the dominant narrative that we're trying to lean into and we're influenced by. It says, look, if you need it, if you have an opportunity to go get it, you got an appetite, you need to eat. And also you need to express yourself through your sexuality. If you want something, you want pleasure, you want happiness, you want satisfaction, you want an experience, then go get it. Life is about you. Sex as appetite, sex as self-expression. This is the water we swim in. And see, those perspectives are really all about me. And Jesus has a different way forward. Jesus says that human sexuality doesn't work like that. You can experiment and try to find fulfillment in all of the wrong ways, but your soul knows something is off when you have given yourself physically and sexually to somebody who is not your husband and who is not your wife. It feels inhuman. It feels like you have given a huge part of yourself away. This is not like some sort of excursion where I go and try to have fun or start a new hobby. This is soulful. And Jesus goes, it's designed like that. It's supposed to be. It's not casual. See, it's very intentional. Tim Chester writes, and I'll I'll wrap this part up. He says, uh, sex is everywhere and everything in our culture. As a result, it's losing its value. The Bible's restrictions on sex are like the banks that that constrain the Niagara River so that it gushes forth in the Niagara Falls. Remove those restrictions and you're left with something more like the Mississippi Delta, wide, shallow, and muddy. And that's where we've landed wide, shallow, confused, and muddy. But here's what Jesus has to say about the character, part two, the character of real love. So the nature of lust and now the character of real love. In Genesis chapter two, write this down, Genesis two and Ephesians chapter five, we read about this thing that the writers call a one flesh union within marriage. Kind of a strange phrase, sounds a little churchy, maybe a little confusing, but a one flesh union. This is where we start to read about the first marriage. God invented marriage. See, in Genesis chapter two, we got one guy, he's all alone. He's looking at all the animals and they've got partners, they've got friendships, they've got community. He's all alone. God creates Eve and he introduces Eve to Adam. It's the first time that his mind is literally blown. He's like, who is that? Look at her. She's gorgeous. She's naked. I love her. I'd like to be in a relationship with her. And, And he starts to sing and he starts to break out in poetry and he starts to serenade. And then the thing that we read right after they're introduced is... God saying, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
Now, on first reading in Genesis chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul picks up on the language of Genesis chapter 2 and that first wedding, you might assume that this is only a physical union, as if he's only expressing or talking about the expression of sexuality. But when we get to understand and unpack what marriage is about biblically, it's about so much more than just the physical one flesh union. So this is why Keller writes, covenant brings every aspect of two persons' lives together. They essentially merge into a single legal, social, economic unit. They lose much of their independence. In love, they donate themselves wholly to the other. And see, what Jesus is describing in Matthew chapter 5 and in the Sermon on the Mount is the opposite of self-giving. It's the opposite of covenant. See, and most of our modern sexual ethic is the opposite of self-giving. It's about experience. It's about self-expression. It's about exploration. It's about searching for satisfaction and happiness and contentment because our souls are starving. And actually, as a human being, you realize, as you explore the modern sexual ethic, we start to realize there's an apologetic here for realizing that I can't fill myself up. I can't find contentment and happiness and identity outside of, uh, within myself. I have to find it outside of myself. But what the sexual, uh, the sexual exploration has done is it's proven that you're not going to find it in sexuality. You're not going to find it in another human being, no matter how intimate the connection. Yes, your impulse is right. you got to be filled up by somebody else. But it's not going to come through the physical relationship with a human How come? Well, because sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. See, when a commitment or when a covenant is made biblically, what a person is saying is, you are are mine and I am yours. And you get all of me. You get past, you get present, you get future. We are binding ourselves to one another economically, emotionally, spiritually, uh, with regards to conversation and uh, communication. We are bringing our lives together. This is not just a physical thing. This is an emotional thing. It's a spiritual thing. There are all these layers of dynamic coming together. And sex is God's appointed way of signing that, of pointing to that, of being a a sign marker in the dirt that says, this is what these two people have committed to. They have brought their lives into covenant with one another. The modern definition of sexuality places the individual and their desires at the center. It's forced young people to leave their emotions at the door. You heard that quote at the very beginning. People are leaving their emotions at the door of their sexual experiences. They've been told to have fun, do whatever they want, right? Don't attach, and then move on. But it doesn't work. It's not supposed to work. This is humanly impossible because God designed sexuality as a sign of the covenant that two people have made with one another. And when you get way out front of that thing, when you have not brought your life together economically or socially or emotionally or spiritually, when you have not brought your life together, but then you have the sign of the covenant, the covenant renewal apparatus, as Keller calls it, this thing that's supposed to remind you, you are all mine, I am all yours, but then you start with that. There's so much emotional, spiritual, soulful confusion, and that's not what true love is about. Love is a fantasy. It's a sexualized over-desire. And so often this is where our sexual addictions begin. They begin in our minds. 
They begin in our imaginations. See, with our imaginations, we create culture, we create cities, we create art, we create music, but we also, with our minds, we undress people. We have over-desire for them, and we treat them as objects to be used and abused and then kind of thrown aside. In fact, Nancy Piercy, she picks up on Jesus' teaching in the sermon, and she translates what Jesus says like this. She writes, don't objectify women. And can I add, don't objectify men. Don't strip them of their identity as full persons by reducing them to objects of your sexual lust. This is what she writes. See, and that isn't love. Love gives of itself. It doesn't demand. Love is interested in the well-being of the other person, not instant gratification. And love doesn't fantasize about what isn't real. It takes a long, honest, hard look at what is real. And it says, I love you anyway. See, that's the nature of real love. That's the character of biblical love. And all of this flows from this Christian sexual ethic of covenant and renewal. And a signpost in the dirt that says, this is what we have committed to. One man, one woman, for life. One flesh union. Yeah, it's a whole lot more than physical. And all of this flows from God himself, and it's the ingredient that a sexually confused culture like ours desperately needs. The last part I'm going to take you through, the nature of lust, the character of real self-giving love, and then thirdly, learning to treasure Jesus. Learning to treasure Jesus. Um, I've got a couple of movements for you. Number one, I think what the Sermon on the Mount is teaching us is that the issue is in our hearts and what our hearts love. The issue is in my heart and what my heart wants. And see, and Jesus isn't beautiful yet. When I see a Jesus that's useful and I interact with a Jesus that's just kind of my partner, he kind of gives me some things that I need when I want it. Jesus is useful to me, but he's not beautiful to me. See, in a Savior who's not beautiful to us, he can't change us. He's going to make no impact on us. We haven't stopped long enough to think deeply about our soul, about our heart, about our need, about the beauty of the gospel. Maybe we've heard the gospel for so long, it stopped being beautiful. And that is where we actually have to go back to and say, you know what? I might know this Jesus, but he's not beautiful to me anymore. And this is what we have to lean into. The issue, Jesus says, is not your heart but it's what your heart loves. And until Jesus is beautiful to you, not just useful, he'll never be able to transform the loves of your heart. Secondly, and really related to this, is you have to recognize that your heart is filled with all sorts of over-desires. Of course, lust applies to more than sexuality. It applies to more than just the physical. It applies to money. It applies to fame. It applies to more. It applies to, I just need more friendships. I need more likes. I have this over-desire for more. And when you, when you come into contact with Jesus, you realize that your heart is filled with all sorts of over-desires that you're looking to have met in all sorts of wrong ways. And then thirdly, as Jesus starts to show you that, you got to run to him and ask him to come and to forgive and to relieve the shame that's built up. 
The conversation around sexuality and the practices that have built up in our lives over literal decades, it's a difficult conversation to have, but it's a grace-filled conversation. We want people to feel that there is no condemnation, no matter what choices you've made, what habits you're stuck in, and what things you want to change about your life. This is the beauty of mercy and it's the beauty of grace. You have to run to Jesus, you're learning to find him beautiful, and when you run to him, you see he's got open arms. You see that he wants to heal. He wants to forgive. He wants to renew. He wants you to live fully in his kingdom. He goes, you got to push all of this mess aside. I'll help you do it. I want to show you what's truly beautiful, right? No more shame and no more condemnation in the light of grace. You got to tell somebody. Christianity makes no sense apart from community, especially as it relates to the self-improvement idea. I want to change. I want to take steps forward. I want to be transformed. This is a community project. Self-examination is always a community project. That means that our community has got to be deep enough for you to have that conversation. We've got to develop friendships and trust so that when these things start to come out, the real stuff of life, the important stuff of life, not the surface mess where we play church, but the real stuff of life where we have conversations that matter. We've got to bring people in because self-examination is always a community project. And then, lastly, we got to move forward, loved and cherished with what I'm calling, what Tim Keller has called, gospel resolve, okay? you got to be able to take steps forward with gospel resolve. Look at verse 29, the second half of this passage. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. What he's saying is, if something is causing you to sin, stop. Cut it off. Be done with it. Make a new choice. Move forward. John Stott kind of phrases it like this. He said, if the eyes of your heart are being stimulated by the eyes of your flesh, then don't look. Man, that's gospel resolve. If the gospel wasn't in front of that and it was just resolve, then it becomes moralism. But at some point in Christianity, at some point in our desire to follow Jesus, we're going to have to make choices. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to live like that anymore. I'm not going to let pornography have a part of my life anymore. I'm going to change the relationship and the dynamic of my relationship. I'm going to start to live Jesus's way. I'm going to date Jesus's way. I'm going to honor my wife or my husband Jesus's way. I'm going to make a choice to change parts of my life. I'm going to move forward with gospel wisdom and gospel resolve. See, resolve on its own is moralism, but gospel resolve, you are deeply loved, no more shame, you have been forgiven, now let's move forward. That's Christianity, and that's what Jesus wants for you. He wants a new life, a new way forward as it relates to our sexuality. Jesus wants to come in and restore it, and friends, in this season, this is a moment for you to think about your life, the choices, the habits, the small things, the small little practices that you have developed that have led you to today and the person that you are. If there are places and parts of our sexuality and your sexuality and mine that need to be restored, let's stop. and Let's let him have it. Let's let him restore it. And then out of grace, let's move forward with gospel resolve. We can do this. This is the moment we're in. Listen to the tugs that Jesus is putting on your heart, and let's move forward together. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for the moments with these friends.
Thank you for honest conversations. And thank you for Jesus, that he would have a conversation like this with strangers. I know some people who are new to Trinity are listening in for the first time. I pray that they would feel that this is a place where we can have honest and real, helpful conversations around things that matter. Lust is an over-desire to meet my own needs. Real love is self-giving commitment to another, but it is modeled in Jesus. Lord, for me to see Jesus as beautiful and not just useful... I have to understand what's going on in my heart. And that takes real friendship. That takes real honesty. Not just people who pat me on the back and say, yeah, 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 you're amazing. But people who say, hey, brother, we love you. But there's some stuff going on in your heart. Can we be a part of that? I pray that you build a community like that at our church where we have gospel resolve, grace-motivated transformation. Change me, change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.